our steam network is just like the electrical distribution system. It just moves energy around. Whereas if you're on the grid, you're waiting for the grid to make its march and it is marching towards a greener set of electrons. But in our case, we have this unique ability to kind of leapfrog past that. People in the buildings won't know anything different other than their carbon just went down dramatically. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we are talking about the drive to net zero carbon in some of our most populated urban centers. In the past year or so, major utilities have announced these pledges promising net zero carbon emissions, usually by 2050. The net qualifier is key, since it's unlikely you won't have at least some fossil energy at some time. The plans are ambitious, and I've heard several insiders tell me these goals are typically announced without a full-fledged plan to get there today. It's basically will be net zero and we'll work out the details along the way. That brings us to our guest today. They aren't a utility. They manage what are known as district energy networks. These are essentially local grids of steam, hot and chilled water pipes instead of electrical lines. Yet they transport energy for sure. Districts are typically located at universities, for instance, or urban centers. Instead of each building hosting its own boiler for heating or a chiller for cooling, these buildings can share thermal energy delivered from a central location. As for these facilities' carbon footprint, they're debted for the electricity they use, which is whatever mix of carbon is coming off the grid just like any of us use. These operators also typically use a lot of natural gas or liquid fuel to run their boilers or chillers. My guest also owns and operates gas-fired combined heat and power units. The strategy is how to eliminate the carbon from these existing operations. My guest says they have a multi-part strategy and it's their belief they can decarbonize their districts faster than utilities can do the same for the grid. My guest today is Bill DeCroce, Chairman, President, and CEO of Vicinity Energy, a district energy network operator based in Boston. I always thought operations like this were confined to cities up north, but Vicinity operates district networks as far south as Atlanta. In early 2020, they bought Veolia's district energy business, making Vicinity the largest district energy operator in North America, with operations in 12 cities at the time of this interview. Bill came from Veolia. Before that, he was general manager for New nuclear operations at Entergy's Pilgrim Nuclear Station in Massachusetts. We get into some interesting conversations about nuclear's role in net zero carbon plans. In late 2020, Vicinity announced its own net zero carbon pledge, which we cover in detail in this interview. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bill DeCroche. Bill DeCroze, Chairman, President, and CEO of Vicinity Energy. And Bill, first off, can you help our listeners understand where public utilities end and a company like Vicinity Energy begins? Sure. In many ways, in the urban cores and campuses where we operate, we look somewhat similar to a public, say, gas or electric utility. Biggest difference is typically the big public utilities, there's an obligation to serve. And if, in fact, you're in the service territory of that utility, you must take the service from them. That's why they're regulated monopolies, because if you're in their turf, you got to buy from them. In our case, although, for example, in an urban core, we may have a vast network of heating 
heating or cooling pipes that cover a large part of, say, a downtown like a Boston or Philly. It's up to our customers to decide whether to take service from us to take it from that public utility or to do it themselves. In other words, buy their own equipment and heat their building, say, with boilers or with chillers on their own. While the services may look similar, in fact, we're in a more commercial competitive environment than the regulated monopoly utilities. Vicinity recently announced a net carbon zero pledge by 2050. Now, this has become pretty popular over the last year or so. A lot of major utilities are doing this. Duke Energy, where I live, made the pledge in 2019. I'm curious, we've cared about carbon for a while. So what's driving all of these net zero pledges? Are investors or banks pushing for this? Is there some reason why all these different groups are only now making all these net zero carbon pledges? What's the inside baseball on that? Like any else, movements start, and then if they have strong underpinnings, they gather speed, right? You've got various stakeholders involved in the movement, right, towards net zero pledges. Policymakers, city governments, state governments, federal governments are pushing in that direction. The population, as they become more aware of issues that surround climate change, particularly younger generations, there's a demand from them. They want to live in buildings that are net carbon zero. They want to work for companies that are striving to be net carbon zero. It's a strong push from just individuals. And then finally, I guess, customers and institutions, corporations, whether it's an institution like a hospital or university or some kind of commercial interest, a real estate trust, they see these same drives. They also have their own beliefs that we should all get engaged in the carbon fight. Really, it's coming from multiple directions. I can tell you, for example, on the real estate front, when we are striving to supply, say, a new tower in a city with either heating or cooling, they know that ultimately the tenants want that as well. Whether it's a life sciences tenant or it's condominiums and apartments or it's office, they know that the customers are starting to demand it as well. And that in fact, it'll be a deciding factor and they may actually be able to charge a premium for it as well. So really it comes from many different angles. To be in business, you're going to have to move in this direction. And so, Bill, we don't hear zero carbon, we hear net zero carbon. There will be carbon produced, like peaking natural gas, correct? You're right about the fact that carbon will be produced. Even the most ardent advocates of getting to, say, 100% renewables knows that it's not on the immediate horizon. It'll come down over time. It may end up being just peaking, but there will be carbon produced. So net carbon means through various means, whether you're an institution or a building, you're going to be able to purchase energy that's sourced from, say, a mix of production assets, whether it's wind, solar, hydro, nuclear, gas fire generation. And what you're trying to do is do the math and figure out at the end of the day from that whole mix, what is the net impact? And the final piece of that is what called offsets. So if you do your math and you find out you still have a carbon basis, a footprint, if you will, to heat and cool and electrify your facility, you can go out and do things and buy offsets. So in other words, you invest in assets that may absorb carbon, whether it's forests or other emerging technologies that may actually be negative in the equation. So in other words, they remove carbon from the atmosphere. Those go in as a negative sign to your math, which ultimately is the best we can do for the facility future because, as you said, there's still carbon being generated out there in modern industrial societies, and it's going to be for a while. 
And so, Bill, the reason why I was really excited to talk to you was for a company like Vicinity Energy, I would assume that you're working under constraints that large utilities are not, like limited assets. I mean, a Southern company or a Con Edison, they have a lot of fossil fuel plants. They have a lot of nuclear plants. They just have a lot more that they can play with. And they have a lot of carbon that they can take off the grid. And then, of course, I'm sure they also have bigger access to be able to buy all these offsets that you're talking about. Mm. So for a company the size of vicinity and operating in the areas that you are, that's a unique challenge. Yeah, you might be surprised to find that for us, it's also a unique opportunity. So let me give you an example. Say you're a big utility that's operating in New England or say in the mid-Atlantic, and you're going to access the grid to electrify your buildings and to say cool your buildings or heat. You have to buy power from the grid and that is made from various sources, correct? I mean, if you look at the underlying sources that make the electrons in New England or in the mid-Atlantic, they're different and you're constrained by what's on the grid. In our case, let's take one of our districts like Boston or Philly. We have a network that feeds hundreds of buildings. Boston, it's call it 65 million square feet, more than 200 buildings. In Philly, it's 100 million square feet that we touch. 300 plus buildings, including all the type of institutional players, hospitals, universities, commercial, you name it. We can go to our central plants that feed that heating or cooling network, and we can make a change there immediately. And everyone in our system gets the benefit of that. And it can be dramatic. For example, already today on those two big systems like Boston and Philly, we have the largest combined heat and power plants. The one in Boston is the largest in New England. The one on our Philly system is the largest in the state of Pennsylvania. So already the people who are purchasing from us have have the greenest source of energy that you can get from burning methane. So when you look at the grid and you say, yeah, we're still going to burn methane for quite some time, our systems already have the benefit of being fueled from a very large combined heat and power plants. Now you take the next step, which is already underway with us, and you look at the balance of the heating and cooling we have to do in those cities beyond what the CHP can provide. So in, say, in the winter peak, normally we would burn natural gas. We're in the process of converting to a biofuel, like a waste oil that's recovered from restaurants. And there's a lot of that, believe me. In Philly, we did a study, there's 90 million gallons a year of vegetable oil available that we can collect and process and then burn, and it is net carbon zero. When we do that, that's a direct impact on our customer base. So in Philly, for example, 300 buildings are gonna get the benefit of that immediately. They don't have to wait for the grid to transform. They don't have to wait or have 300 buildings retrofit to put in boilers, say, they can heat their building with a biofuel. We do it at one location, on our district energy system and our central plant, everyone gets the benefit of it. So we can rapidly make moves. And for example, there's a big move we're looking at right now is to electrify the generation so it feeds these big district heating networks. So for example, in places like Boston and Philly, where we have a big combined heating power plant, it's already connected to the grid at the high voltage end of the system. We can go buy huge quantities of renewable power and we can feed it into brand new electric boilers that can convert at 100% efficiency. And all of a sudden, for that footprint of people that are taking service from us, all 300 buildings, say in Philly, all 200 plus buildings in Boston get an immediate transformation. Whereas if you're on the grid, you're taking from the grid, you're waiting for the grid to make its march. And it is marching towards a greener set of electrons. But in our case, we have this unique ability to kind of leapfrog past that. Now, granted, we can't touch the whole grid. We can't touch the whole state. But in the environments where we operate that are urban cores and campus we can move fast. So it's kind of interesting when you talk about constraints, we look at it as an opportunity in many respects. 
I was curious about the biofuels as a solution, and you touched on switching to electric boilers. Are you going to be retrofitting your gas-fired boil? I have a little bit of experience with boilers. I used yeah. to work for a company that did water treatment for boilers, but those gas-fired boilers are pretty efficient. They're the industry standard. What's your plan there with the biofuels and the gas-fired boilers that you already have to heat all of this office space, for instance? Sure. Typically, the boilers that we have, not the big gas turbines, the big combined heat and power facilities, leave those aside. Conventional direct-fired boilers, we typically have dual fuel, so they can burn natural gas or liquids, which used to be petroleum, right? Light fuel or light heat heating oil. We only burn of our total requirements, maybe 1% of that. So we're 99% gas in those. Those are already set up and we've already tested them to burn liquids. We already have the tanks available. So this year in 2021, we will eliminate any petroleum burn that we have in places like Philly and Boston. We're able to source that kind of quantity of waste oil that is vegetable oil that's net zero. And we've already tested it. We've already got permits. We've gone through the environmental permitting to burn it. So that retrofits pretty easy. You take your conventional boilers. And remember, ours are big, large scale conventional boilers with all with continuous emissions monitoring. So we know what's going on in them. Unlike some of your call it lower tech or where you're not required to look at emissions in buildings. We are as big facilities. We're already there. We can retrofit. Now it's just put the fuel in and burn it and eliminate carbon. On the electric side, we'll put in new assets. We have room in our facilities. We have these big central plants, many of them that were built back in the day, the original sites by a Boston Edison or a Philadelphia Edison, we have the room to install brand new large-scale industrial electric boilers. So we will swap from methane to renewable power as soon as we put those boilers in. Because remember, we're already sitting on the high voltage transmission system. We can buy power right off the grid, turn it into steam, and send it to our buildings. And this is kind of a key point for us. When you look at our, say, steam network, our steam network is just like the electrical distribution system. It just moves energy around. Just like the wires move electrons around, our pipes move steam around, the primary fuel source is independent. We'll go ahead at our plant and swap, say, from natural gas to renewable power. In that case, you know, convert that into steam energy, and that goes right out to the buildings as if, you know, seamless. People in the buildings won't know anything different other than their carbon just went down dramatically. Let's talk about renewable energy a little bit. Are you going to purchase renewable energy? Are you going to even build renewable energy products to supplement this? I've had some guests on in the past who sold renewable-only retail electric energy plants. What about the electric side of all of this? Yeah, so we want to move fast, right? We're already sitting on the grid. We're working aggressively on these plants to convert, and we will buy renewable power initially. So we'll enter into purchase power agreements, PPAs, as you know, they're called, and we'll buy renewable power. But as you also know, the availability of that power, it's non-dispatchable. There's a load shape to it. It changes by season, by night and day. We'll be in the unique position to do what we will call carbon dispatching. We will still have these big, very efficient combined heat and power gas units. And then we'll have PPAs for renewable power. And at any given time, we will basically dispatch on the lowest carbon alternative. So it really puts us in a unique position where we can dispatch the assets that have the least carbon intensive footprint at any given time, round the clock, 24 seven, 365. And this is again, where I talked about why we can leap forward pretty quickly for our customers is because those are the assets we control. We'll enter into the PPAs, we'll still have our CHPs to dispatch, and the customers will ultimately get a very low carbon product. Now, over time, my guess is that as we look at our future investments, we may contemplate actually developing our own, say, solar fields. Frankly, I think wind is 
going to be a different play. That's not really something that I envision us getting into, particularly because of the scale of offshore wind that's going to come to the markets where we operate, you know, the East Coast predominantly. I think that's more likely we're just buying that renewable power and then putting it into our mix to come out with the lowest carbon product we can provide for our customers, if that makes sense. And Bill, let's talk a little bit about the other carbon-free source, which is nuclear. And is there an option to only buy nuclear energy, for instance? You can buy PPAs from whoever will sell it to you, right? (laughs) You go out to the market and you find out who's selling what. There's various nuclear concerns out there that have entered into PPAs. There's different strategies for those nukes. I think, as you know from my background, I spent a lot of time in nuclear. There's different strategies that have evolved over time. In many cases, the big nuclear baseload stations are just price takers and they just put electrons on the grid wholesale and they don't enter into PPAs. It's a mixed bag out there what you can do with nukes. In our country, they're all large units designed for baseload operations. So they run around the clock. They have very high capacity factors in the high 90s, you know, 98 plus. They might play around with their portfolio and decide what slices they might sell off in PPAs. But many of them have evolved to just ride the markets. They put electrons on the grid at wholesale. Yeah, I remember I one time was at a conference with another company that was supplying renewable-only energy, and I said, well, why don't you offer a nuclear plant? It's like, well, people really want renewable energy. They don't want nuclear energy or that carbon-free energy. And I kind of was like, look, I humbly disagree. <laughs> you know, you I mean, it's carbon-free. You know? carbon you scratch your head about that. I did that for 20 years, right? And it's always, I get asked the question, well, are we going to build more nuke plants? I said, well, in what generation are you talking about? <laughs> Do you want to talk about our generation, your kids' generation? I think ultimately other parts of the world kept building nukes. It's a very political issue, obviously. So some political environments that are more command economies can decide we're building nuclear plants. In societies like ours, where stakeholders and the neighborhood has a lot more say, it's a tough political and commercial battle to fight. So I think all the nukes have have decided they're going to continue to exist, have gone for license extensions, but you run out of extensions and they're pretty much there. I mean, they're at 60 years now, many of them. There's been some talk to go to 80 years, but there's an inconvenient truth out there called neutron embrittlement, which means the reactor vessel is getting bombarded by neutrons right around the reactor core for decades. And eventually it runs out of service life. And I don't think anyone contemplates doing a heart transplant on a nuke. I think the existing nukes will run their course, but there's a bit of a cliff out there because they still provide an awful lot of carbon-free power safely, but there's going to be a point of time a couple of decades out here. So we talk about these net carbon goals for 2030 or 2050, and many players who make those commitments are looking at the grid and saying, well, the grid's going to keep getting greener. There's a challenge out there when the nukes fall off because they're dispatchable units as well, which means you turn them on and run them when you want, not depending on which side of the earth you're on, day or night, or when the wind is blowing. Short of a major paradigm shift in energy storage, that kind of dispatchable asset falling out of the grid portfolio is going to pose a very interesting challenge a couple of decades down the road. So you know about nuclear and you're in a very urban setting. What do you think about the small nuclear reactors? I've talked to a lot of folks at New Scale. They seem to be pretty bullish on this idea of mixed use. So you're talking about a lot of hot water and they think they can situate it pretty close to urban centers. They don't need to be way out on the edge of the county. What are your thoughts about that being a way to power these urban areas? Yeah, I've been hearing about small nuclear 
modular units for a long time. And at the end of the day, if your process is a fission process that still produces the type of fission products that come off of that, siting gets very difficult. And along with the siting, the design has to be inherently safe. Your containment systems have to be super robust. And then you still have to convince people that they want the new plant near them. Now, there's parts of the country where the politics are different, but when you get into urban cores or even near urban environments, I struggle with the fact. And remember, the cost that's associated with those type of designs, those type of safety systems, basically scale helps. So when you can generate 2,000 megawatts, but you have to spend all that money on, say, siting and safety, and I'll come back to the fuel in a second, the smaller reactors, it's hard to pencil it. And then you've got to get somebody to finance it as well. I don't know. I'm not trying to rain on the parade because I think it is a underutilized resource. But at the end of the day, I'm not so bullish. Sure. Bill, let's get back to some of the other things you might be using. We talked about biofuels. We talked about the electric boilers. Are you exploring new technologies, maybe hydrogen, batteries? Absolutely. We're looking at all of the above. And when I talked about dispatchable and non-dispatchable assets, right, and storage, storage is the key. And batteries come in different forms, right? You've got your standard industrial that's coming off now, lithium-based batteries that you can stack like Legos. There's other alternatives. There's thermal batteries. We have ice plants where we make ice at one part of the day when power was cheap, and then we would melt the ice during the day to cool buildings. There's also other scale size batteries that we can take advantage of. Because remember, we have central plants in urban environments that touch lots of space. So instead of having to retrofit lots of buildings, we can do it in one place. So we're looking at various types of storage that we can put into that mix of ours to get to that net carbon. Between electrification and biorenewables, big CHPs that are the best use of methane, and then storage technologies to make it and then store it for when we need it, we're all over that. We're looking at liquid metal batteries, which at scale may make sense in individual buildings, probably not. And then things like hydrogen, as well as the other is biofuels. Hydrogen can be pretty easy on combustion assets. In other words, it doesn't dramatically change the design of the plant you need. It doesn't make maintenance costs go up dramatically. It's more the infrastructure. Where can you get hydrogen at a price point that makes sense, right? As that develops our scale, if there's a place where we're probably going to be able to deploy hydrogen first, it will be at central plants like ours, right? We could burn that in our boilers with not not too much retrofit. And the big combustion turbine players, you know, like I talked about our big CHPs, they're already working on it. And frankly, on the smaller CHPs, the smaller gas turbines, they're already setting them up where they can burn these liquid biofuels. A final piece of that is heat pumps, large-scale heat pumps, yeah. where you're basically using electricity to move around free energy. We sit on rivers, we sit on oceans, we can grab energy out of sources like that or out of the ground and move thermal energy around that way. So we're looking at all of the above. I think the point you made on your first question is why are we different? Because we need to still do it in a competitive fashion. We will follow the technology. We also need to follow the commercial aspect on what works. Now, government policy may make some of those work through incentives, which we've taken advantage of in many cases. We're keeping our eye on that ball to see what kind of incentives come out for those technologies. The changes in Washington may drive some of that. We're, we're staying very close to any of these advancing moves. Yeah, I was about to ask you about geothermal as well. The guest before the last episode we had was Dandelion Energy that had done some innovations in home heat pumps. I'll be honest with you, that's where scale can hurt you. Because when you're trying to heat a city, like we do in many cases, big sections of a city, you got to put a lot of holes in the ground to do that for geothermal. There's some limitations on that. Whereas if you can grab energy out of a river or the ocean, like they do up in Toronto, big cooling district, that may be more appropriate. And it's expensive putting that kind of network of holes in the ground for geothermal. 
won't. We're following it, but maybe less likely that we adopt those. I'm curious about your business model. You said you're in Boston. You said you're in Philly. Are there other cities that you're looking at? And are there places where they could adopt a network like this? We're in 12 cities. We look to build out our networks in all of the cities where we operate. We're looking at other district energy networks because that's really our business, district energy, right? That's where you have central plants and then networks of either pipes that move hot water, cold water, or in some cases, electricity, right? We're constantly looking at cities where we can invest and then improve the performance of the assets, moving them towards lower carbon alternatives. We think this electrification move is something that's going to be probably adopted in our business anywhere we are tied to the wholesale grid because it makes sense and you can move fast. There's a lot of campuses. So universities are trying different models where they can let energy experts take over their campus district energy networks and their generating assets. There's ample opportunity for us to continue to grow our portfolio of district energy and again, move it down the path towards lower carbon and high reliability as well. Very rarely have an outage on pipes. Any of our large urban core districts, typically the large medical institutions are fed by us. They count on our product, particularly steam for sterilization. Without our product, they can't do surgery because they have to sterilize all their instruments. People get the benefit of our reliability as well as our move towards lower carbon. Going back to earlier about these carbon markets and you guys buying offsets, I've discussed carbon markets in the past. You're going to be episode 105. I think I discussed it as early as episode eight. (laughs) And going back to the drivers we discussed earlier, how structured is the carbon market? Do you see it getting more structured, easier to do offsets? And also, what are some interesting things you're seeing in the offset space that you could purchase? Markets that are controlled, say, by policy directive are tough. It cuts both ways. Let's say a state institutes a market for carbon. Massachusetts did that under their Global Warming Solutions Act. Then they've got to try to come up with mechanisms that will work and that will have the intended consequence. And it's hard. Big liquid markets like electricity or gas, market forces are well proven on how markets work. Much smaller controlled markets where you're trying to match supply and demand or you're trying to determine should it be tariff-based. That market is created to do one thing, which is reduce carbon, but also it's to drive investment. People have to be comfortable that they can invest in technologies that might need incentives and count on the fact that the market is stable and predictable. So it's a challenging order of business for these policymakers. I think the bigger the markets get, the better it gets because they become more liquid and more stable and predictable. And investors will be more likely to say, okay, I can bank on that. I'll go build that based on that market. And the offset market, look, there's all different shades of green in the offset market. Right. Many stakeholders, when they look at your claims of whatever your claims on carbon are, they're going to look at if you do offsets, what type are they? How credible are they? How long term are they? How certified are they? I think that's one of the challenges as these markets have developed is that there's a lot more scrutiny and there's a lot more thought process going behind. If you're going to use offsets, which many stakeholders don't necessarily like it, but they recognize you're trying to do this math equation to get to net zero, they're being much more scrutiny placed on the type of offsets you buy. Is it verifiable? Is it sustainable? Is it real? We spend a lot more time talking to people about the type of offsets we might enter into. Okay. Anything else? I think we went through it, Bill. You know, I think for us, part of our challenge is people say we're a district energy company. 
many people scratch their head. They say, what's that? Or, oh, that's old. That's a steam business, right? But the notion that you have these networks in urban cores that can move energy around in their existing infrastructure that is very difficult and expensive to replace, and that you can change out on the front end of that, whatever fuel source you want is just a key learning, a key takeaway for many policymakers who are trying to fight the carbon battle. We're just finally doing a better job teaching them what a tool we are. We go in to touch 100 million square feet in Philly and just change something at two plants or one plant, people sit up in their seats and they go, wow, hadn't thought of it that way. And these districts are everywhere. Any place where you have a dense energy field, so a hospital, a military base, a university, a stadium. So the opportunity to use these districts to really get into the carbon fight is dramatic because it's a force multiplier. Instead of having to retrofit all the buildings in an area, you only retrofit the central plant at the district energy system, and then it touches all the buildings. I think that's a key learning that we're trying to get the word across on. Well, I certainly have learned a lot. I'm aware of district energy systems. I wasn't as familiar with them. So I really do appreciate your time today explaining that for me and the folks out there who are listening. Great. Um, Bill, are you interested in doing the lightning round? People are, some people love to do it. Some people are like, ah, you know, don't worry, not interested. Uh, Bill, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. Okay, as long as you don't mind a little tongue-in-cheek on a couple of them. I appreciate brevity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'll be brief, believe me. <laughs> okay, yeah, starting with natural gas. Okay, you asked for lightning, so we're going to be burning it for a while because it's dispatchable, but it's on a downward trajectory. Crude oil. No future. Nuclear. Should be in our future. We need the political will to make it part of our future. Coal. And I always say coal with carbon capture. Coal with carbon capture is fine if you can make it economic. Wind. Going to be lots of it. Offshore particularly. I expect to see a flood of offshore wind hitting the coasts. Solar. Stamp it out as fast as you can make it. Biofuels. Huge untapped reservoir. Hard to make it economic at scale other than in urban core environments. Hydroelectric. Great resource. Hard to permit because you have to damage the environment to build dams and flood valleys and such. It's hard to expand. Geothermal. We'll see a lot more of it. I think in mid-intensity energy environments outside of urban cores, lots of opportunity for it. Energy storage. Paradigm shift. The big challenge will be, do you feel safe with that type of energy storage advice on utility scale in a neighborhood? Electric vehicles. Make sure you know where your electrons are coming from. Are they green or not? And also we need to keep a very close eye on how those batteries are made, what the environmental impact of that is. Energy efficiency. No brainer. And then finally, fusion power. Science fiction. You didn't check out my fusion panel episode. Oh, okay, well, look, look, I, I told you it was going to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, right? <laughs> a fantastic energy source if we could ever get the technology to work at scale. It's just got a lot of material challenges. All right, Bill DeCros, Vicinity Energy, thank you so much for your time. All right, thank you, sir. That was Bill DeCrose, Chairman, President, and CEO of Vicinity Energy, a district energy provider based in Boston. I want to thank Bill for his time as well as Devin Yassi at Trevi Communications for setting this up. I last worked with Trevi on our Ice Energy guest in episode 30. Thank you for another terrific guest. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode at Energy-Cast as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes, that gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 105. Be sure to join us next week when we are introduced to a technology that can help make mineable lithium accessible almost anywhere in the world. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.
Thank you.